I think my opening story is just completely inappropriate for following up that awesome song. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So I just had a son this week, which is great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and as my son is going, I'm actually glad he's not here today so I can actually say this. As he will find out soon enough, having a preacher for a dad is sometimes really awkward. Because it seems like every preacher every week has an embarrassing story to share about one of their children. And I'm going to do the opposite today. I'm going to share an embarrassing story about my dad. This is payback because I had to live with it for like 30 years. Now I have something that I can share about my dad. And no joke, I wouldn't share this if, I was, if he was here today because he, he hates this story. Not just like, oh, that's embarrassing, but more like, don't tell people that. Don't. <laughs> Like, don't ever. This happened when I was in college, and uh, my dad was working with another ministry organization to help bring a new strategy to our church. And the strategy was really good. It was very simple. It was also very, very biblical. It was from Matthew 22. Someone says, teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. My dad explained we need to focus on the first commandment first and the second commandment second. Focus on loving people after you focus on loving God. Should be simple, right? If he explained it like that, it would have been totally fine and I wouldn't have a really funny story to share because in explaining, explaining this epic strategy to my church. My dad started by talking about all of the great ways our church loved other people. He said, and this is, this is wild, our church back in Seattle sponsored more orphans than we had members at our church. That's great. We gave thousands of dollars to international missions, and we also had set up a really great nonprofit for our community. Our church, my dad said, was really good at loving, loving other people but he didn't say it like that. He said, our church is really good at doing number two. <laughs> over and over and over again. I'm not kidding. My dad actually said, and this is a direct quote, our church is full of number two. <laughs> so I'm like sitting in the back row. I'm like, is, he, is this intentional? Is, is he straight face? Our church is full of number two. And, and everybody's acting just like you. They're laughing. And my dad has no idea what's going on. I'm crying. Tears are dropping off my face. My friend, my friend Gene is sitting at the aisle right over where Joe's sitting. And Gene has to stand up and leave because his face is so red he thinks he's going to pass out. I'm not exaggerating. That's happened to Gene before, which he probably wouldn't want me to share. But it was, it was so funny. I never forgot it. My dad forgot it somehow. And when I told him this story, he says, I didn't do that. And I go, oh, oh, you did. But as crazy, as funny as that story is, it's absolutely true. It is easier to be nice to our neighbor. It's easier to love our neighbor than it is to love God. It's easier to write a check during the sermon and then just to check out after we do that. It's easy to say we're going to have fun and fellowship with our Christian brothers and have nothing in our spiritual life with God. It's easy to be full of number two 
and completely forget number one. And that's what we're talking about this month, loving God first. When we get closer to God, we're closer to the one who is saving the world. And when we're closer to him, we're closer to ourselves because he's our creator. This week, I'm going to close with what happens when we do both of those things, when we get focused on God and let him move in our lives. When we get closer to God, God is going to bring people into our lives because people are his plan. God brings people into our lives, and we get to love and serve them. I'm, we're going to look at Jesus and how he was a great friend to people, how Jesus treated strangers really well. But first, I want to talk about how I have not done a good job of that, because I have to start, start off with a bad example, right? When I was a teacher, I was walking down the hallway with my friend John, and John had just gone on a first date. And I don't remember which girl it was that he went on a first date with, because he dated like four girls last year. And uh, he wanted to tell me about his first date. And so I said, John, tell me, how did it go? And he said, well, it was awesome. I went to this brand new sushi place. He was trying to impress me. This brand new sushi place called Sushi Jubu. And I said, oh, that's cool. I've been there four times already. And he's like, oh, man. He was secretly sad that I had already discovered it. And I, and I remember that the more Americans started going to restaurants in Asia, the more their prices would, would go up. They said, oh, there's Americans going. Now we can jack up our prices. So I said, John, how much was the all-you-can-eat sushi? And John goes, it was $11. And I said, are you serious? It was $7 last time I went. They're raising the prices because all the Americans are going now. And he's like, are you serious? And so we were kind of frustrated about that. And then I said, well, the same thing happened at my massage place. They raised their prices when Americans started coming. And the movie theater started doing it. And the pasta place started doing that. And we started off talking about John's first date, and then eventually we're talking about massages, sushi, and movies, which is me. That's what I love. And I realized I had taken a conversation all about John and put it all about myself. That is not what we're called to do. If you learn anything today, don't be like Patrick, okay? That's the lesson that we should learn. When God brings people into our lives, we need to prioritize them. We need to treat them like they're important. Maybe for the first time in their life, they get treated like they are a child of God. We can learn about how to treat people by looking at Jesus. And it's really cool to see Jesus quoted in non-religious texts when people say, I don't believe in Jesus, but, but this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, look at what he did. And my favorite book that's not religious is called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And no, that's not a book for lonely, sad people. It's a book for people who want to maximize their potential. And, and what's really cool is as I read this book, I've noticed Jesus did almost every single one of these things. And then a few chapters in, I realized this guy is modeling this book after Jesus. And then he starts quoting Jesus. He identifies Jesus, Dale Carnegie, he's the author, he identifies Jesus as somebody who was amazing at treating people like they were a priority. Carnegie states it like this. This is a piece of advice. Make other people feel important and do it sincerely. He said, Jesus did this nonstop. Here's just a list that I came up with off the top of my head. Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at the well. No one else would even travel to the well with her. Luke 4 says people who knew Jesus were amazed by his gracious words. Jesus touched lepers. He was somebody that everybody wanted to eat with. Tax collectors who were hated wanted to eat with Jesus just as much as the Pharisees who were the religious leaders, wanted to eat with Jesus. Jesus' first words to Nathanael before he became a follower were this. There is a real Israelite 
not a false bone in his body. If that was the first thing that somebody said to you as they saw you walking up, there's Patrick. He's a true American. Everything's true with him. That makes you feel good. That kind of makes you feel nice. Jesus knew how to make people feel important, and they flocked to him. Are we good at making people feel important? When somebody comes and they're having a conversation with you, do they feel like you are prioritizing them? Or do they feel like you're just one of the people that they talk to? Do we treat people like they are children of God? There's another thing that Carnegie writes about in How to Win Friends, and it is the single best piece of advice I've ever heard. As soon as I heard it, I also realized Jesus nailed this as well. Here it is. Talk in terms of the other person's interest. How to Win Friends is a book written about the idea that everybody is interested in only what they're interested in. So I'm interested in my stuff. You guys are each interested in your stuff. And the person who can be interested in other people is the person who wins. And Jesus did this over and over again. Carnegie quotes Jesus in this chapter of the book and says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. He says that everybody wants to talk about their own interests, their own passions. And if somebody will join you in that conversation, you're going to like them a lot more. Think about how Jesus does this. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks about the spring of water that gives eternal life. And where is he? He's at a well. In John chapter 6, Jesus claims to be the bread of life, right after he did a miracle creating enough bread to feed 5,000 people. In John chapter 7, the, the Israelites, and we, we talked about this a couple months ago, they were praying for God to bring rain. They were celebrating water. And Jesus says, hey, if you're thirsty, come to me. Paul, when he's in Athens, he learns about the Athenian gods before he preaches about the one true God. This piece of advice isn't common sense, or is com it, is, it is common sense, and it's not a secret. I think that we can all understand what it means. It's a way for God to bring people into our lives and us to connect with them. So if you want to prioritize people that God brings into your life, find out what they're interested in. Find out what their passions are. Find out what makes them tick. And then talk to them about that, because soon after that, they're going to ask you the same thing. So tell me about yourself, and then you're able to share your faith with them. Jesus always made people feel like they mattered. He treated them important, and he, made, he talked about what they were interested in. And they flocked to him because people are his plan. I'm going to share some stories today about how my life has been affected by the people that God brought into my life. But also, I'm going to share about how those people came in a way that is very similar to what Jesus did. And I'm going to share a way that God works in the Bible. A way that God has worked in my life. Because as many times as I've seen God work in this way that I'm going to share, I've also seen him break all of the rules I think I knew about God and blow my mind and work miraculously. So I don't want to say that this is the only way that God works, but I have seen him work in this way. And I know that he will work in this way in our lives as well when we put him first. And many times in life, God brings us in contact with people in what I call the commonplace. The commonplace is a place that's open to everybody. It might be work. It might be a social place. It might be a Starbucks. It might be a, a big social family. It might be a party. But uh, the commonplace is a place that's safe. It's a great place to meet people because it belongs to everybody. Each of us in here we have uh, access to different kinds of commonplaces because each of us have different social lives. Each of us do, does different things for jobs. Each of us has different interests. And so I'm going to share a story in a minute about my friend Adam 
and our, our commonplace was the Starbucks where we worked at. But first, I want to look at a commonplace that Jesus worked at. One of the greatest places that Jesus established a commonplace was at the well in Samaria. Jesus went to Samaria, which he shouldn't have gone if he wanted to follow all of the customs. And he shouldn't have talked to the Samaritan woman that came to the well. The Samaritans were ostracized, and this woman was an ostracized person in her city. And Jesus met her at the commonplace, at this place that belonged to everybody, which was the local well. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. The well was a social gathering spot, and it was also a utility. You had to go there to draw water every single day. And what most people think is that the women who would go gather the water, they would do it early in the morning while it was still cool. So the fact that a woman is going to come to the well at noon alone tells us that she was not the most popular person in town. And we're going to find out she was a person that had a bad standing in the community. She's alone and she has no friends, but she meets Jesus at the commonplace. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus meets this woman in the commonplace, the city well, and he proceeds, if you know the rest of the story, to change her life. And we'll get to the rest of the story in a minute. And for the first time ever at this moment, this is when Jesus first chooses to claim to be the Messiah. He changes her life. He's going to change the entire city. And all of it started at the well. It all started at the commonplace. I had a commonplace with my friend Adam. Adam and I, we both worked at Starbucks, and we worked the afternoon shift in Los Angeles, which means we only made like five upside-down caramel sauce, caramel macchiato, whatever. I can't even remember what they were anymore. We only made like five an hour. It was very, very dead. Our Starbucks almost went out of business because it was so dead. And what that let us do was Adam and I, we became really good friends. We would talk most of the time, and then, oh, sorry, we got to help a customer now. And then we would help the customers. But Adam and I, we, we established a common place at Starbucks because it wasn't my place, it wasn't his place, but we both went there together to do our job. After a while, Adam and I decided that we would start hanging out. And that's the cool thing about common places, is that you meet people and you find things that you have in common. After a while, we decided that we were going to play golf. Um, we decided that we were going to play golf because we said we both like golf, but that more than golf, what we really, really liked was cheap golf. And if you know me, I I'm an okay golfer, but I, I, love, I love cheap golf because then if you make a really bad shot, you're not thinking to yourself, and I do this, like, that shot just cost me 
$2. I hate that. But then the, the, the more golf shots you take, it lowers your cost and lowers your cost and lowers your cost. So, um, yeah, that's how I golf. Anyway, Adam and I decided we were going to go to this golf course, and Adam said, and I thought this was a lie, he said, I know a golf course that we can go play for $2. And this is in Los Angeles County. And I said, are you serious? And he said, uh, yeah, well, let, let's go. So I follow him. We turn right on Shoemaker. And you got to remember Shoemaker Avenue for a second. And then we, we go to um, the Norwalk Golf Center. And the Norwalk Golf Center is what, is what I would call the second place. And I would call that the shared place. The shared place is the place that Adam and I shared together. Now, it's called Norwalk Golf Center. But what I started referring to it is the worst golf course in all of Los Angeles. This place was terrible. Um, it's kind of funny because you could buy a hot dog for $1, and that meant that your hot dog was 50% the cost of your green fee. It's kind of weird. Um, this call, golf course was really, really short, which meant that um, on the first tee box, you always had 10 or 15 people waiting for you to tee off, which is not the way you want to start a round of golf with 15 people just staring you down. The first hole ran parallel to Shoemaker Avenue, and so you had this huge 30 or 40-foot net just to prevent all of the terrible golfers from hitting it onto the street. Across the street was John Glenn High School, and um, they would be getting out, and then all the high school kids would see you golfing, so they'd honk at you as you went down. And it was, did I mention it was the worst golf course in Los Angeles? It was terrible, but it was $2. And so Adam and I, we golfed there multiple times every single week, and we established a shared place there. My best memory of the worst golf course in Los Angeles happened on that first hole, and it was an awesome, like, 80-degree afternoon, and there were a bunch of construction workers who had been let off early, so they were right behind us. There was, like, 15 of them, and they were watching me tee off. And so we were all just hanging out, eating hot dogs, and I, I walk up there, and I put my ball on the tee, and I swing, and I hit the ball. And the good news was that the ball got a whole lot of loft because when you're golfing, you want the ball to go high. The bad news is that as high as it was, it was also going directly left. And that, that, that net, I said, was 30 or 40 feet high, which is great if your golf ball is going 30 or 40 feet. My, my, my shot cleared the net like that was the goal of the entire game. It was, my, my, my shot was going so far left that it was like I was aiming for the green that was in the science classroom at John Glenn High School. My, my shot was, wait for it, going to be a manhole in one. Uh, <laughs> and so as soon as I see this, I'm just like, oh, this is a terrible shot. And there's 15 dudes all right behind me. This is so embarrassing. And then I see the only thing that can make it worse. A brand new Honda Civic driving right down Shoemaker Avenue towards my golf ball. And I would love to say that my golf shot was so bad it cleared the street and hit the high school. I would love to say that the driver saw my golf ball coming and swerved out of the way but those would all be lies. My golf ball bounced on the street directly under the car, bounced up and banged the bottom of the car. I could hear, you could hear the shot all throughout the golf course. The driver slams on his brakes, hops out of the car and points at me and then points at the golf course. And he's stammering, he's so angry. He's like 200 yards away, but I can hear him mumbling. And, and I'm thinking to myself, no matter what he says, I know I deserve it. Anything he says to me, if he insults me, if he sues me because he could do that, I know I deserve it. And so he says, hey, you're supposed to hit the golf ball that way. And then he gets in his car and drives off. That's it. 
And, and there was a bunch of silence, and then he drives away, and all of the construction workers, me and Adam, we're, we're going, is that it? You're supposed to hit the ball that way? That's all you've got to say. And so for 10 minutes, we stood there coming up with the things that he should have said. And then, and then we realized the worst part was he was probably doing the exact same thing. He's like, you're supposed to hit the ball that way. Why would I say that? It was, it was the best memory that Adam and I shared at the worst golf course in Los Angeles. Our, our shared place was a place that belonged to both Adam and I and allowed us to go from the work conversations to the kind of conversations that guys have when they're growing closer. I found out that Adam had recently started dating a girl who was Christian, and Adam wasn't a Christian, and he said, I want to know more about what it is you believe, Patrick, so that I can understand my girlfriend better. He says, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to live like Jesus? Soon enough, it turned into a point where every time we got to golf, I knew that we would start talking about spiritual things, and this wouldn't have happened if we had kept our relationship at Starbucks in the commonplace. But it happened because we were in a shared place. My beliefs in God were totally common, were able to be shared in the shared place because it was a place that we had together. It's important to establish shared places with people that we think God is reaching out to. uh, Shared places are safe, and it's where personal questions can be asked and where personal answers can be shared. God moves in these places. The coolest thing that happened was I used to pray, God, please let me bring up God, bring up church, bring up something in my conversation with Adam. I didn't actually have to pray this that many times because I knew when we golf, it meant this is the time that we can talk about spiritual things. Spiritual or shared places allow us to have spiritual decisions and conversations with people before they're ready to come to church, before they're ready to start reading the Bible. They're also the front line of God's plan in reaching out to people. And we get to be involved, and these kind of relationships start in the commonplace, but they really develop in the shared place. And Jesus knew this. He did the exact same thing. Jesus didn't play golf, and he wouldn't have played golf at this golf course behind me. But Jesus also didn't continue working at the well. He eventually moved away from the well. He didn't just preach in the countryside. After Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, he was invited to come into the town. He was invited to speak to other people into their town, which became their shared place. Jesus also spoke in synagogue. And what that meant was he, he was able to speak in a place that belonged to all of the Jews. It was the common place for, or it was a shared place for the people who were going in a common direction. Jesus never required people to come into a religious place to learn about the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he said that on a beach. That's really cool. Jesus had shared places because he knew that relationships don't grow in the commonplace. They don't grow, they don't develop in the public place. They grow and develop in the shared place. But Jesus also knew that there was a third place. And this place is so much more important. And we all won't get to go to this third place with everybody. And the third place is what's behind me. It's their place. It's a special place. It's the biggest battleground. And it's a place that we get invited to. When people are inviting us into their houses, they're doing way more than inviting us into their residence. When people open their doors, they're actually opening their hearts. Think about the last person you had over for dinner, the last person that you allowed to stay at your house. It was probably not someone that drives you crazy. Now, maybe it was, maybe it was. But if you are going to invite somebody over for dinner, 
it's not somebody that you don't like. It's somebody that you want to share life with. You're going to say, I value you enough to let you come in to my house, to let you come into my life. I want to share my life with you. When people that we meet in the shared place or in the common place, when we have people in our lives that are not Christian and we get to a point where we can invite, when they invite us over to their house, we need to know that they are inviting you to share in their life. My favorite story that I'm going to share tonight or today has to do with their place. When I was in Austin, I decided I was going to teach guitar lessons, and it was basically so I could afford Starbucks every day and afford cable so I could watch NFL. It wasn't this great, oh, I'm going to be a Christian and teach guitar lessons. No, I wanted premium cable. And so I got referred to this one family, the Silvas family, and they had one hang-up before they hired me, and the hang-up was that I was a Christian. They said, well, we heard that you're a pastor, and we don't really want to hire you because of that. And I said, hey, that's fair. I understand. I didn't understand. But I said, I understand. Let me come over for dinner. Let me play guitar with your kids for, for an hour. We'll see if we get along. If not, we'll be fine. You don't have to hire me. So I went over there, and things went great. But during dinner, they grilled me. They, they, they were thinking, they, they wanted to know, is this a secret conversion tactic? Are you trying to do something to our family? They were very, very suspicious of me. They also grilled some amazing tacos. And I said, you know, there's only two things I want. Teach you guys guitar lessons and eat more tacos. That's it, I promise. There was something going on in their house. There was something going on in their family, and I didn't know what it was. But they hired me, and I continued to teach guitar lessons for a year and a half there. Eventually, after a while, they said, Hey, Patrick, why don't you stay over for dinner now? You can teach guitar lessons, and you can stay over for dinner. They were slow, slowly warming up to me, and I knew that them inviting me over for food was not just, hey, let us provide you with nutrition for your body. It wasn't like that. They were saying, have dinner with us, watch a movie with us. They were saying, share life with us. A few months later, I went through the toughest time in my life. And those of you who know me really well know what I'm talking about, but I went through some really lonely times, some really just demoralizing times, both emotionally and spiritually. And the Silvas, they, they became the family that, really took care of me. They, I, I shared with them what was going on in my life because I had no one else to share it with. And they said, Patrick, this is horrible. And we want you to know any night of the week you want to come over for dinner, you are welcome. We have two teenage boys. We make enough food. You can always come over for dinner. And on Wednesdays when you do guitar lessons, you are staying over for dinner. And you can stay as late as you want. It was crazy because I'm a minister, I'm a pastor, and I was thinking I can take care of these people, but that's not the way it was working. They were taking care of me. When I wrote down this part of the sermon, I actually stopped, opened up Facebook, and emailed Lisa. I said, Lisa, I'm sharing the story about how we met, the crazy God thing that God did to help us, help me meet your family. And I said, you guys took care of me in the worst moment of my life, and I want to say thank you. So they invited me to share in their life, and eventually one night, late night over dinner, they decided to tell me why they were suspicious of Christians. Before they had kids, when they were still young, they were involved with a really dangerous, a really harmful sect of Christianity that practiced some really, really horrible things. It was, it was cult-like, and they were forced to do things that they didn't want to do. The, um, the church audited them, controlled their finances, made them put, take all of their money and put it in a joint bank account. They said, you must live with these people or you don't love Jesus. 
completely destroyed their lives. It got to a point of when they decided to take one step back, none of the people that they had lived with for years would talk with them anymore. The families they used to live with said, you are dead to us. And with Perry and Lisa, I started to understand why their mistrust of me was so deep. We talked for a long time. And the cool thing was that I had had some experiences that had helped me understand and minister to them and say, this is not what Jesus wanted. These people that are leading in this direction, that's the opposite of how Jesus led. Dinners every single Wednesday, it it stopped being about guitar. It started to be about who Jesus was and what it really means to follow him. Again, I didn't have to pray, God, please enter this conversation. I had been invited into their life, and they said, Patrick, what are you interested in? What are your passions? And I was able to share that, and because of our relationship, that was okay to talk about. I told them, the leaders that you used to follow were the kinds of leaders that Jesus said you shouldn't follow. And here's who Jesus really is. About two years later, I was living in Asia, and I logged on to Facebook one day, and I did an absolute double take. I saw a picture, and Lisa, Lisa Silva, she posted a photo of her son, my guitar student, playing guitar. And he wasn't playing guitar in school, and he wasn't playing guitar in a cafe. I noticed really quickly, I recognized a place. He was playing guitar in my friend's church. It was so cool. And I, I talked to Lisa. I said, Lisa, I left two years ago. What's been going on? And she said, after our conversations, they started going to a church across the street. God started doing amazing stuff in their life simply because they invited me in and I was available to talk about God and say, here's who Jesus is and here's who Jesus is not. But I wasn't shocked. I was not shocked that any of this happened because I knew when they invited me into their house, they were inviting me to share in their life. When people open up their homes, they're opening up their hearts, and God uses that. This is exactly how the story ends with, this, with the story in Samaria. The woman says, Jesus, I think you're a prophet, and Jesus says this. The woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And she believes But it doesn't stop there. They go into town, and Jesus is able to communicate one-on-one with the people who stay in town. That's their shared place. That's the place that they all have together. But then Jesus takes it one step further, and this is how the city is changed. It moves into their homes. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Jesus did not change the community at the well. And he didn't change it just by hanging around town for a little while. He changed it over the course of two days because he stayed in their houses. They weren't just saying, hey Jesus, here's a place to sleep for two days. They were saying, Jesus, stay with us because we're open to what you are saying. We're open to your message. We're open to hearing more about the kingdom of God. So, stay with us. When people open their homes, they're opening their hearts, and God moves in. We meet people in the commonplace. We grow closer together in the shared place, 
and then we can get invited to their place, and that's when God involves us in his plan. I'm going to close with a story that we've talked about a whole bunch, and that's in Luke 10. I shared this on the mission trip, and it was just a great and horrible way to close an awesome time of ministry. It's one of Jesus' most successful times in ministry, and um, he is sending out people to all of the different places that he wants to go. And so he gets 72 disciples, splits them up into twos, and he's going to tell them to go. Let's read this. After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. Here's the important part. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the workers deserve his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Jesus is saying, find someone open to my message and stay with them as long as they want. Eat with them. Drink with them. Jesus says when they open their house, they're opening their hearts. And the cool thing is that God is with you. And then we all know what happens next. This whole plan, it works. The disciples come back and they are so excited. They say, Jesus, we casted out demons. Jesus, we did this. Jesus, all of these people, they are so ready to follow you. I, th I think that fist bumps were probably invented here. And Jesus gets excited too. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There needs to be exclamation points here. I have given you authority, talking to the disciples, to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Jesus is pumped. The disciples are pumped. Imagine how excited you would be if you went out on a missionary journey just for a week and then came back here and all of us were successful. We couldn't start the church service because we're all too excited about the church serving our community. And we're just like, all right, let's just share stories all day. And then Jesus comes here and Jesus says, I have given you power to overcome everything. We would be excited. And then Jesus does something next that is the most challenging thing in the Bible. It's the most challenging thing to anybody here who wants to lead in a ministry, and it flips everything on its head. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is huge. Jesus is saying, rejoice because you are saved, not because you got to be a part of somebody else being saved. Jesus knew how to dampen a party. Jesus says, we matter more than the work we do for him. Even when we do great things, even when we produce spiritual fruit, even when we get to be a part of somebody choosing to follow Christ, our relationship with God is more important than any work we might do for God. And we rarely live like this is true. Our church, the global church, 
rarely reflects this idea. It makes no sense to us, but it makes so much sense to God. And Jesus understood it too, and that's why he was so successful. A relationship with God comes before work for God. Don't be full of number two. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. I've missed this so many times, and I know we have too, and this isn't something that we can fix instantly. It's so much easier for me to work on my sermon and ignore my personal spiritual life. This is public. This is what I have to do. I could completely hide my spiritual life. It is hard to do something in private. It is easy to do something in public. Our relationship with God comes first. It's easier to lead a ministry than to lead ourselves to be closer to God. And Jesus knew that. That's what's so great about Jesus. That's why he said to the disciples, rejoice that you are God's before, that, before you rejoice that you get to do God's work. It comes down to this. When God sees me, he doesn't see a preacher. He doesn't see a writer. He doesn't see a youth minister or somebody who's really good or bad at board games. Jesus doesn't see some scoreboard of how many good things I've done. Jesus doesn't see how many bad things I've done. When Jesus sees me, he doesn't see how great or how bad my ministries were. He sees Patrick, the restored child and friend of God, whose name is written in heaven. So whether you get to see the fruit of your Christian witness, if you get to see the fruit of your ministry, if you get to see the fruit of reaching out to people, whether or not our church grows, whether or not our friends who have left the church ever come back, our job is simple. First, we move towards God in our hearts and with our time. And then secondly, we point towards God in our lives so that people can grow closer to God. Because God plan, God's plan, I said this a month ago, God's plan, it works, God wins, and we can get closer to him, the one who is already saving the world. During our prayer time today, we're going to do something a little bit different. And sometimes we encourage people to pray in groups or pray together. Today I'm going to ask that we all pray individually. And there's um, some students that are going to be all around the room, and, and they've got little mini compasses. And I'm giving out a compass to every person here today because Jesus is our compass. He showed us, if you want to change the world, here's how you do it. You move towards God, and you point towards God. And so when we get the compass from one of the students around where, where we're sitting, they're going to say to us, we are God's plan to save the world. And there's two questions. Go to the next PowerPoint. And during our prayer time today, if you want to come up and pray with one of the shepherds, that is great that you can do that. But what I want everybody to do, too, even if you're not coming up here, I want you to pray and ask God these two questions. First of all, where in my life do I need to give God my time? This is not about going out and being strategic and changing the world. First, we have to let God in our life and fully follow him. And then secondly, because this is the number two part, who in my life are you seeking God and how can I serve them? So we're going to go up. We're gonna, let's, all, let's all stand up right now. And where, where are the students at? You guys just spread, spread all around the, uh, around the room. And these compasses have little stickies on it. And what I would love for you to do is stick it on your mirror, stick it on your fridge, stick it somewhere just to remind you that Jesus, he's our compass for changing the world. He lived, Jesus was God, but he was also fully human. And he showed us, if you want to live the most effective life possible, live like me.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for sending Jesus to save us, and I thank you for sending Jesus to show us how to live. God, I pray that we will do these two things. First of all, that we will move closer to you. And then after we've done that, that we will point towards you in the relationships in our lives, in the things that we say, in the places that we go, that everything we do will point towards you and not towards something here on earth. God, I pray for all of us here that we will continue to take time to move closer to you, to give you our time when we're at home, when we're at work, just find ways of spending time with you. God, again, I thank you for Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.